Greetings and welcome to my podcast, Algonquin Defining Moments. This is your host, Gay Clemson, oral history author, storyteller, and lover of all things Algonquin Park. As you know, I've researched and written extensively over the last 20 years about the human history of Algonquin Park, which I'm really having a lot of fun sharing with you. Before I begin, I wanted to take a moment to thank all of you who are considering supporting my Algonquin Park storytelling efforts by becoming an Algonquin Defining Moments patron or buying some merch. As I've mentioned before, doing either is easy. Just click on the Become a Patron badge or the Gifts and Gear button at the top of my Algonquin Park Heritage website or on my Podbean podcast show page. There are four different patron support levels, each with lots of goodies. My merch collection has over 30 items from coffee cups to water bottles, journals to t-shirts. For this episode, in addition to my own research for my books Treasuring Algonquin and Canoe Tripping Then and Now, most of the content comes from a number of key sources. These include Roderick Mackay's 2018 Algonquin Park, A Place Like No Other, Norm Quinn's 2002 Algonquin Wildlife, Lessons in Survival, George Warecki's 2019 book on J.R. Diamond and his recent 2021 book on Douglas Pimlott, David Euler and Mike Wilton's 2009 book, Algonquin Park, The Human Impact, S. Bernard Shaw's 1998 book, Lake Opiongo, Untold Stories of Algonquin Park's Largest Lake, Richard Miller's 1962 memoir, A Cool, Curving World, George Garland's 1989 glimpses of Algonquin, 30 earliest impressions from earliest times to the present, various articles from the Raven newsletter volumes 1 to 3, the Friends of Algonquin Park publications, Fisheries of Algonquin Park and Fishing in Algonquin Park, other related science and research information reports, IR 07, 10, 13, 14, and 22, that are published by the Ministry of Natural Resources and Forestry in conjunction with the Harkness Laboratory of Fisheries Research, led by Director Mark Ridgway, an undated history booklet on the Harkness Laboratory, the Harkness Laboratory of Fisheries Research official website, Dr. N. V. Martin's Lake Opiongo, The Ecology of the Fish Community and of Man's Effects on It, and of course, John Robbins' 1943 book, The Incomplete Anglers. I also need to give a huge shout out to my friend and colleague, Roderick Mackay, that I know is Rory, for his marvelous summary of the key Harkness Lab research results. Not only did he help me make sure that I was getting all of my explanations right, or at least mostly right, he's also been marvelously gracious about tolerating my sometimes off-the-wall storytelling. In the last episode, the primary purpose was to introduce you to the human history of the Harkness Laboratory of Fisheries Research. In this episode, I'd like to do a little bit more of a deep dive, pun intended, into the specifics of the people who were the pioneers and a look at some of the research that they were doing both then and that others are doing now. So here goes. That first year, the pioneer labbers, as they called themselves, included Dr. William Harkness as director, Professor Ray Langford, Professor and Associate Chairman of the Department of Zoology at the University of Toronto, both of whom I mentioned in the last episode. In addition were students Bill Kennedy, Victor Solman, Richard Miller, and Ken Doan, amongst others. Ray Langford carried out a study on intermediate-sized food items in Lake Opiongo Lake Trout, 
which was published in 1938. Later, he was part of a study carried out in the 1940s on the effects of DDT, and he was also involved in studies on the artificial fertilization of lakes to increase their productivity, both of which we'll talk about a little bit later. He became director of the lab in 1946 when Dr. Harkness moved on to lead the Department of Lands and Forests Fish and Wildlife Division. Victor Salmon worked at the fisheries lab until 1939 studying the microscopic animals and the insects that supported fish populations in streams. He went on to become the chief limnologist with Canada's Department of Northern Affairs and National Resources. Ken Doan was interested in smallmouth bass, the growth of yellow perch, and possible ways of providing suitable food sources for bass in Cache Lake. He went on to become the chief biologist for the province of Manitoba. Bill Spruels was involved in studies of the distribution of aquatic insects in the park, particularly in the Madawaska River system. Bill was known to have been quite creative in the building of cages with which to trap insects. As Richard Miller shared, Bill had built large Cooper screen cages big enough to step into. These were permanently fixed to the stream bottom so that insect larvae couldn't escape under the edges. Each morning, poor Bill cautiously opened the door in the trap, squeezed in, closed the door, and spent at least the next hour catching his catch and putting it in a bottle. Since about 90% of the occupants of the cage were black flies, he got constantly and severely bitten, and since to swat them would spoil his count, he was defenseless. Richard Miller studied and published research about the biology of insects living on the bottom of Costello Lake for four years. His description of how he caught the insects he studied is a classic. I was attempting to measure the daily rate at which insects living on the lake bottom became mature, rose to the surface, shed their pupil skins, and launched themselves on their brief aerial existence. I built a number of little tents of wood, wire, and cotton, each four foot square. These were floated by two empty syrup tins and anchored by long ropes to rocks on the lake bottom. I had five of them, each floating over a different depth of water. The theory was that the insect emerging beneath the tent would have the misfortune to be caught in it. Of course, many arguments developed. Some maintained that the insects would avoid the shadow cast by the tent and veer away from it. I stoutly asserted that the random drifting movements of the tent would thwart the feeble dodging powers of the rising pupae. In any way, the tents caught plenty of insects, often many hundreds per day. The main problem that developed was getting them out and into a bottle, where they could be killed, identified, and counted. It was suggested that I should swim out armed with a bottle and forceps, dive and come up inside a tent. Then, by treading water patiently for about four hours, I could catch the bugs and put them in the bottle. There was some merit in this suggestion, because if a tent were lifted and tilted on one side, the insects immediately departed. I evolved a successful compromise. I would go to each tent in a canoe lift the tent straight up and set it across the canoe gunnels. Very few flies had sense enough to fly down and under the edge and so away. They stayed stupidly in the dome of the tent. So by lying on my back on the bottom of the canoe, it was possible to suck up my catch, one by one, into a small aspirator bottle through a rubber tube. 
My fellow colleagues did not find this quite as funny as the mental picture of me treading water under a tent, but it afforded considerable amusement nevertheless. Miller later wrote a book which included some of his experiences living at the abandoned road camp at Costello Lake, where the picnic area is now. And after his time at Lake Opiango in Costello Lake, he secured a position at the University of Edmonton in Alberta. From 1937 to 1942, Bill Kennedy studied and published on possible locations for hatcheries, the biology of whitefish, and a study of seasonal migration of fish from a shallow lake to a deeper lake. One of Kennedy's other claims to fame was his creativity in figuring out how to utilize timbers to build a raft with a central hole that had above it an A-frame hoist. Using this hoist, a heavy weight would be raised and dropped to pound stakes into the lake bottom to anchor trap nets at trap sites. His experience as a commercial fisherman before coming to the lab was a contributing factor, it appears. Bill Kennedy became a senior scientist with the Fisheries Research Board of Canada. In June 1938, Dr. Murray Fallis engaged a study to count blackflies and estimated that between four and 5,000 blackflies emerged from a little less than one square meter of stream on Costello Creek. Can you imagine that? Just the very idea has me shivering and scratching behind my ears. Fred Fry, who I mentioned in the last episode, conducted research at the lab from 1936 to at least 1947. He was involved with the startup of the Creel Census. Extension of the Creel Survey to lakes other than Opiango, studies on distribution of lake trout, and the ecology of fish in lakes. As a professor at the University of Toronto, in 1949, Fry developed a method of, quote, quote, virtual population analysis to understand the effects of fishing on fish populations. Fifty years later, it continues to be the main means of determining total allowable catches in fisheries management. We presume it was Fry when he was at Harkness, who discovered that lake trout at this latitude and altitude were immature. And when they reached legal size, and though fished legally, stocks could be ruined through lack of adequate breeding stock. At that time, the recommended solution was to close lakes for a year and allow fish to mature and reach spawning size. For a while, this became a standard administrative practice, until later research proved that previously closed lakes seemed to become magnets when they reopened, leading to more overfishing. According to Miller, Dr. Fry also got interested that first summer in the composition of fish blood. He wanted to understand better why some fish, like lake trout, needed very clean water to survive in, whereas others were able to live in partly polluted water. He suspected that it had to do not only with how much oxygen was in the water, but also the respective fish's blood ability to absorb that oxygen. Over time, he developed elaborate and sensitive methods to make these measurements, and in so doing engaged a whole generation of young biologists in the field of animal physiology. Fry acquired a wide reputation and an enviable prestige. It seems he was also always busy at something, either with his hands or with his brain. As Richard Miller wrote in his 1962 book, A Cool Curving World, Fry would pull out a book and read it while he was eating lunch. And when he wasn't busy with his own work, he was with someone else's. We went to him for information about everything. 
Though primarily a zoologist, he knew the names of all the trees and herbs in the park. If an outboard engine quit running, he could fix it. When difficulty in writing a report developed, Fred knew just the right way around it. And if your work wasn't going quite as it should, Fred could quickly see why and put you straight. With a 1943 publication on angling in Cache Lake, Nigel, known as Nick Martin, began a long career of studies specializing in the biology of lake trout. With over 50 individual papers and articles based on his fisheries work in the park, he continued working out of the fish labs well into the 1970s. By then, he had become a world-renowned authority on lake trout. His papers range from bionomics of lake trout to tagging of lake trout to spawning of lake trout to the winter food of lake trout to homing behavior in lake trout and even to a detailed study with Fred Fry in 1973 entitled Lake Opiongo, the Ecology of the Fish Community and of Man's Effect on It. A listing of many of these articles can be found on the www.harkness.ca website on the publications page. Not only was Nick Martin interested in his official work, he was also an important source of information about cultural heritage sites on and near Lake Opiongo. W.J. Christie undertook studies of smallmouth bass, and in about 1955, which according to Norm Quinn, revealed that in Lake Opiongo there was quite a difference in the number of young bass around from one year to the next. This variation in what researchers call class strength was believed to be due to the weather. Christie showed in 1957 that the years in which smallmouth bass were abundant were almost always preceded by three years of warm summers. Bass, it seems, grow rapidly and reach catchable size at about three years of age. In 1981, Jim McLean reconfirmed this notion by a sophisticated statistical analysis he and his team were able to show that a warm first summer mattered, but also a less severe follow-on winter also played an important role. Baby bass, it seems, need to bulk up, as it were, to make it through the winter, and a short, cool summer doesn't give them enough time to do so in that first year. Since the early 1960s, scientists in wetsuits, masks, and snorkels have been engaged in a long-term study of nesting male bass in Lake Opiongo, including the counting of their numbers since 1977 and nesting success since 1983. For 30 years, beginning in about 1960 and continuing to 1989, James Fraser conducted and published studies on brook or speckled trout and fish stocking strategies in Algonquin Park. He was the Harkness Lab's director from 1965 to 1975. According to Norm Quinn in his 2002 book, Algonquin Wildlife Lessons in Survival, Fraser was an affable, down-to-earth fellow who charmed everyone he met with his earthy wit and simple, self-effacing manner. His research objective was to test hatchling delivery methods, such as by truck or aircraft, to figure out which ways produce the best return of stocked fish. One experiment on a small lake in the early 1980s was a surprising failure. Further investigation proved that a well-fed loon on the lake was responsible for the poor survival rates, leading for a while to the thought that perhaps loons needed to be controlled. Luckily, clearer heads prevailed and nature has been allowed to run its course. 
However, not to be deterred in wanting his stocking programs to be successful and not sidelined by loons, Fraser had this idea that if he could train the trout in the hatchery to be wary of fake loons, then they might be able to avoid real loons in the wild. Alas, his experiments didn't work, and as Norm Quinn wrote, it appeared that brook trout apparently were slow learners. One last set of notable studies was in the 1940s, near the end of World War II. There were a number of experiments done of DDT in the park. Now, as most of you know, I hope, DDT was banned in 1972 after it became apparent that it was a seriously dangerous chemical compound. But alas, back in the 1940s, its impact on wildlife and on humans wasn't known, and it was for a while perceived to be better, quote-unquote, because it was less harmful than the chemicals that were being used and promoted previously. Initially in Algonquin Park, it was thought that the chemical might be useful in combating an extreme spruce budworm infestation, which had appeared in 1944. Experiments were done with it, along with lead and nicotine, by spraying it over great patches of forest. Another experiment was to spray it directly into Brewer and Costello Creek and Costello Lake. Luckily, other studies were done to assess the impact on birds, mammals, and later fish. And of course, to no one's surprise, lots of species of fish and insects in the creeks and lakes died. Another early experiment was to see what would happen to a lake if it were artificially fertilized with nitrates and phosphates. The original hypothesis was that perhaps both would influence fish growth in a positive way. Instead, as was unofficially reported, the lakes turned green, and at least one case the oxygen level was depleted, essentially killing the lake. Now why am I telling you all of this? Because it's important to remind ourselves, especially now in the middle of this pandemic, that science and following the science is really important, even if it seems to take us in odd directions. The DDT experiments, though not directly, did contribute indirectly to what led eventually to the writing and publishing of Rachel Carson's Silent Spring in 1962. Though her book's focus was on the negative effects of chemical pesticides, it was work that started a shift in global environmental consciousness that ultimately became the global grassroots environmental movement. For this, I am very grateful, because whilst I was growing up on Canoe Lake, it was common to spray our sleeping cabins with this stuff called Flytox. Flytox was an insect spray full of DDT, amongst other dangerous chemicals. The objective was to kill all the black flies and mosquitoes in the cabin, and no one at the time gave it a thought that they might be killing us as well. I hate to imagine how much DDT I consumed as a youngster. Okay, so it's time for another fun fish fact break. This time the topic is fish stocking. Now don't forget to try some of these conversation starters at your next dinner party, lunch date with your boss, or Zoom meeting event, and report the reactions on my Algonquin Park Heritage Facebook page. Did you know that lake trout were first stocked in 1911, then brook trout in 1918, and finally splake in 1954? Splake is a hybrid of lake trout and brook trout that cannot reproduce. The peak number of fish stocked in a year was 905,000 in 1923, 
driven for the most part by a desire to meet the expectations of visitors that were visiting the lodges along the railway corridor. The park was being heavily advertised as, quote, supporting the best fishing grounds then to be found in North America. A minimum of 10,300,000 fish have been stocked in Algonquin Park in over a century, with cash and canoe lakes receiving the greatest numbers. The peak number of lakes stocked in a year was 126 in 1959. The overall peak year for numbers of fish stocked and the lakes receiving fish was in 1962. At that time, 255,610 fish were distributed among 108 lakes. Most interior lakes are able to maintain sustainable trout populations, likely because they're harder to get to and therefore less likely to be overfished. Stocking still continues on the Highway 60 corridor and in certain recreational zones, but in a much more managed way. The last two big stories I want to share are about the brook or speckled trout. But first, I need to share a bit of background about brook trout. In 1991, in Rhode Island, researchers Mary Keefe and Howard Wynn proved that wild brook trout in a hatchery setting could differentiate their home waters from the hatchery groundwater. In other words, their work suggested the idea that trout had this genetic ability to orient to their home waters. Think of salmon in that regard. A few years later, Roy Donsman from the University of Guelph and Peter Eisen, an Ontario government scientist, got intrigued by this idea with a unique twist. What if, in Algonquin Park Lakes, each type of brook trout that existed have adapted in minute ways to the specific characteristics of the lake in which they are confined? And perhaps they've been doing so for the last 10,000 plus years. If so, then adding fish that have been raised in hatcheries elsewhere may, when they interbreed with the existing fish, affect the native fish stocks in some way. Dansman and Eisen's studies showed that every lake produced brook trout that were unique and could be distinguished through their genes, even in lakes that were only a few hundred meters apart. The two were also able to identify which lakes had trout with a hatchery marker gene and which did not. As a result, they could identify which lakes had, quote, pure wild brook trout and which showed evidence of interbreeding with stocked fish. They also discovered that fish that had more than 50% hatchery genes also grew larger than wild trout by the same 50%. Though perhaps good for anglers, it was perceived to be bad because, as Dansman and Eisen wrote, maintaining a larger body size might be harder on lakes where there is intense competition for food, or on lakes that are more infertile, i.e. clear and clean. It seems that truly wild trout which rarely grow larger than five pounds, might be that way for a specific reason. In other words, the lake can only support so much trout poundage. In addition, it turns out that domestically raised trout usually only spawn once over their lifetimes, if at all, whereas wild trout seem to be able to do so more than once. Now, this might be because the native trout usually live longer, 
an adaptation that has occurred perhaps due to the harsh conditions that they live in. Before I begin my next trout story, I think it's time for another musical interlude. Here's Dan Gibson's Solitude's Easy Stream from his Breaking Through the Mist CD.
The second trout story comes from work done by Jim Fraser, who I mentioned at the beginning, who was a pioneer investigating the spawning habits of brook trout, especially in lakes where brook trout had no means of spawning up inflow creeks, which is their preference. He found out that these confined brook trout would seek out sites near the shore where cold, oxygen-rich spring water upwells through gravel called seepages. More recent research in the late 1990s and early 2000s have shown that brook trout are able to feel spots along the shore where the upwelling is strongest, and that in most lakes there aren't enough of these seepages to accommodate all of the female fish. This means that, as Quinn has written, these inshore springs are among the most sensitive and critical fish habitats anywhere. As described in a September 1992 Raven article, The Last Color is the Best Color, brook trout have very exacting requirements for successful reproduction. The spawning beds must be made of sand or gravel that the female can stir up after laying her eggs in such a way that the material covers the eggs and hides them from would-be egg eaters. At the same time, precisely because they do end up being buried in gravel, the eggs are liable to run out of oxygen at some point during the winter-long incubation period or be poisoned by their own waste products. This problem is countered by choosing beds of gravel that have an upwelling of spring water. Percolating up through the gravel, this water will bring new oxygen to the buried eggs and flush away the waste products. Female brook trout are also very sensitive to the presence of these crucial upwellings and will return year after year to the exact same spots on the spawning beds. When they first arrive, they clean off any debris accumulated over the summer and prepare these shallow depressions in the gravel where 500 to 1,000 eggs will be deposited. As this happens, the closely followed male fertilizes the eggs that then float down to the gravel and are subsequently buried there by the female's vigorous tail fanning movements. If all goes well, the eggs will hatch sometime between February and April, and a month later, after the yolk sacs have been absorbed, the little brook trout fry will emerge from the gravel and start their lives as free-swimming fish. An interesting fact about brook trout that I didn't know relates to both the color of the fish egg and the color of this fish itself. Anglers love brook trout, especially in the fall, not just because of their exterior appearance, but also the color of their flesh. As I'm sure all of you have noticed when you look at trout in the fish department of your local supermarket, the range in the orange color of trout flesh is quite varied. It seems, though, as noted in this same Raven article, fish are not capable of manufacturing the orange and red pigments themselves, but derive them instead from pigments contained in the bodies of certain tiny crustaceans, on which they prey. For much of the year, the pigment is stored in the muscles of the fish, accounting for the beautiful orange color of brook trout flesh, so much appreciated by Algonquin Park fishermen. With the approach of the spawning season, however, the pigment moves from the muscles to the skin in males and in females to the ovaries and eventually to the eggs. Trout eggs are usually various shades of a reddish-orangey color, and it seems that research in hatcheries has shown that those that are a deeper red, red-orange color, survive better. Why this is so is not exactly clear. 
though lots of theories have been proposed. The idea most generally accepted now is that the carotenoids that enable the orangish color somehow improve the delivery of oxygen to fish eggs and may even help the egg survive in the low oxygen environment of the belly of the female trout before spawning. Jim Fraser is also partly responsible for the current ban on the use of live fish bait in the park. In a 1978 paper, he described a detailed analysis of fish grown in a small lake called Little Milano Lake, which lies east of Spurl Bay. Beginning in 1962, the lake had been stocked every year with various combinations of brook trout, splake, and rainbow trout. For years, happy fishermen reported their successful catches. That was until 1968, when yellow perch appeared. Soon enough, it became clear that the trout were having a hard time competing with yellow perch. For 10 years, Fraser studied the lake, and his analysis of stomach contents showed that though trout had originally successfully fed on minnows, leeches, dragonfly nymphs, and crayfish, due to the competition from yellow perch, their diets changed to much smaller items such as caddisfly and midge larvae, which in turn slowed their growth rates. His work resulted in the banning of live bait, as the introduction of perch and other small fish was a danger to good trout lakes. New generations of researchers continue to explore the fascinating aquatic environment in Algonquin Park Lakes. A study that just began this past summer, in 2021, is being led by University of Toronto biology professor Bailey McNeens. The purpose of this study is to better understand fish movement and habitat occupancy changes as Algonquin Park lakes seasonally heat up and cool down. That has implications regarding how climate change and the expected increases in water temperature may affect lake food webs. The team will electronically tag in canoe, tea, and smoke lakes 20 each of lake trout, burbo, white suckers, and smallmouth bass. These three lakes are connected, so they share the same fish species. Networks of acoustic receivers will be anchored in the lakes in sufficient numbers to capture fish movement in three dimensions. The fish will be surgically implanted with acoustic tags that transmit individual identifications as well as their depth. As individual fish move amongst the receivers in each network, their identity and depth will be recorded by the closest receivers, and groups of receivers detecting an individual fish will be used to triangulate position relative to the lake surface. In this way, fish positions will be determined in 3D every four to six minutes through all seasons of a year until 2026. To discourage anglers from keeping the tagged fish if they are caught, the internally tagged fish will also be marked with a hopefully recognizable external tag that will be attached to a public information campaign. The idea being for the public to get the message that if you catch any one of these, please let it go, because it's part of a scientific study. Another organization called the Real-Time Aquatic Ecosystem Observation Network, www.raeon.org, is providing the infrastructure and data management that the Canadian researchers will need to carry out this cutting-edge integrated and transformative research. Their in-kind donation will also help record the temperature of the lakes. The hope is that over the next five years, 
the team will be able to capture warm summers, cold summers, short winters, long winters, and see in real time how multiple species in a community respond to those changes. As McMean says, we can then connect those behaviors directly with production to better predict how climate change will affect freshwater fish. Mark Ridgway is the current director of the Harkness Lab. He's been a researcher there since the late 1980s. His studies started with research onto smallmouth bass. Recently, he has written about the probable nature and consequences of climate change in the park. As we head into that uncertain future, there is little doubt that the Harkness Laboratory of Fisheries Research will remain as one of the most important centers in Canada for freshwater fisheries research. Okay, so it's time for our last fun fish fact break. As I've said previously, don't forget, try them out at your next dinner party, lunch date with your boss, or Zoom meeting event, and then report their reactions on my Algonquin Park Heritage Facebook page. Here we go. The composition of individual lake food webs determine the size of grown lake trout. Those with at least one source of prey fish don't have to spend as much time foraging, and they seem to grow larger than those in lakes with none. In lakes with none, the fish have to live on invertebrates, zooplankton, and perhaps small shorefish for food. The largest lake trout are usually found on lakes only in the north, like Cedar, North Tea, and Manitou. When smallmouth bass are removed from a lake, lake trout are able to recapture their proper position in a lake food web. Brook trout are widely distributed in lakes and streams of Algonquin Park, but do not compete well if there are smallmouth bass and yellow perch present. Many brook trout-occupied lakes in the center of the park have no bass, but perch are just about everywhere. Two other kinds of common Algonquin Park fish are lake whitefish and cisco. Lake whitefish occupy deeper, colder water in summer months, whereas cisco like to live in open water environments and occupy the boundary area between warm and cold lake water, as well as deeper, colder water of lakes during the summer months. Cisco have turned out to be very efficient competitors and, when introduced, can displace and kill off native lake whitefish. Fish species not native to Algonquin Park, such as northern pike, walleye, largemouth bass, and rock bass, have been introduced to its watersheds usually by humans. They tend to do this by either directly by dumping live bait, or they carry the fish over the dams, both of which are extremely problematic. This is why the use of live bait was banned in 1974, and a huge sign on Highway 60 reminds anglers about that fact. We'll talk about all of this in a later episode on the human impacts in Algonquin Park. All of this talk of fish, though, has me remembering Lyle Ireland's report in 1914 of fishing for speckled brook trout in the northeast side of the park upon his first trip to the Kiosk area. Almost every one of the five or six days of our stay in 1914 was fabulous. The speckled trout fishing was such as a sinful mortal has no right to expect. Everywhere. At the Kayashkokwe Dam and the rapids below, in Mink Creek, and at the head of the lake. We called the latter spot the chute because of the then intact log chute, now completely gone, 
which we could and did walk all the way up to the pool below the Moosehorn Portage. There was a dam at the outlet of this pool to hold the water for sluicing the logs down the chute. On the other hand, Jake Pigeon from Cache Lake and a friend were boating across Cedar Lake after a relatively unsuccessful day, but they managed to turn their experience into a few laughs. As Jake told Don Stanfield in a 1991 interview, we passed two fishermen who stopped us at a distance and showed us that they had caught two nice-sized lake trout. We didn't have quite the same luck, but we had to show them what we'd caught. So we pulled our one and only six-pound trout out of the holding tank and showed them. Then we dropped it back in and pulled the same fish out but held it differently. Then we pulled it out again with two hands this time and repeated this same routine about five times. We then wished them good luck for the rest of the day. While we were pulling away, you could see these two guys look into each other with long faces, not saying anything, but watching us putter away with big smiles on our faces. In the early 1940s, Pete Purcell from Smoke Lake used to camp at neighbor Jack Hamilton's fishing camp on Ragged Lake or Jim Stringer from Canoe Lakes on Porcupine Lake. This was before those lakes were part of Algonquin Park. One of the walls in Pete's cabin on Smoke Lake had at least a half a dozen large fish mounted on plaques, and he could regale one for hours as to how and when every single one was caught. As Pete told me in 2003, this was a time when one could reel in 23 to 4 pound bass an hour. And as Robert Miller from Galeri Lake recalls, Nothing can compare to the action experienced in playing a smallmouth bass, nor the subsequent mouth-watering meal. Of course, the big bass caught now are more apt to be three to four pounds, rather than the six to seven pounds of earlier years. A mounted seven-pound-plus smallmouth bass caught by my father graced our home for years. Likewise, my mother was a skilled fisherwoman, and the park booklet, Fishing in Algonquin Provincial Park, still shows an unnamed photo of her holding an eel she caught in Galeri Lake in the early 1930s. The relatives of Tiny Norman, who had a cabin also on Smoke Lake, noted that every evening all summer long, Tiny would troll up and down the north end of Smoke Lake along a predetermined path that only he knew and never passed on. Even today, there are those that say that Tiny's trek is the best-kept fishing secret on the lake. But my favorite, and a very memorable book of an Algonquin fishing trip, is of course John D. Robbins' The Incomplete Anglers. Unfortunately, it's currently out of print, but many of its great stories I've included in my book, Canoe Tripping Then and Now, which is available through the Friends of Algonquin Park bookstores. This fishing saga is a classic. The location where they're fishing is called the Forks and lies, I think, where White Partridge Creek meets the Crow River. So to properly close this episode, I leave you with the paraphrased words of Robbins as he describes his first day of fishing on a park trip in 1943. On this side, the creek sparkles down among the stones, clear and gay and reckless, with from 6 to 15 to 20 inches of water, dances coquettishly. 
and then purls alongside some old driftwood to the end of a sandbar. By means of a fair-sized log and a series of more or less reliable stones, it's possible to get well out into the stream. Poised precariously on the largest and outermost stone, I cast out my line. Ping! A flash of silver, a sudden jerk, a fierce clicking of the reel. I had him on. Madly I began to swing the rod from side to side and to pull it back over my head in order to keep up with the lengthening line. He must not get under a log. He must not dart under a stone. I must keep the line taut, but not too tight. I must remember not to jerk. I must remember all the painful lessons of former years. Above all, I must try not to reel him in too fast or too short. Finally, I grew collected enough to acquire control of the trout and myself. For the life of me, I cannot tell when I actually began to reel in line. I do know that I had put the reel on wrong and began by giving the trout the advantage of several yards of loose line. He was still on when I caught up again. I had seen my prize. It was no monster. It was a good-sized fish. It was putting up the fight that trout in fast water can always give, but was evidently well hooked. I was impatient to have it landed, however, and began to shorten the line. There is at this point a difficulty concerned with the cooperation between a rod and a landing net, or rather the space lag between them. Now when the fish net is in the water and the fish is being led to it, or when the fish is in the water and the net is being guided to it, and as the case may be, there ought to be, I think, a nice adjustment of distance, so that these two could be brought neatly and featly together. But I do not achieve this nice adjustment. I find myself reaching out wildly with one hand as far as I can, while with the other I manage to manipulate the rod in such a way as to leave a gap twixt fish in the net, and I jerk on the rod at the same time with a hand which is usually far out of effective control behind my shoulder. The fish comes hurtling by, and I suddenly feel the strain eased. I swung my rod out of the water. My trout was gone. There comes a time when the loss of a fish is a small matter, even to the humble, unless it is demonstrably the best of the season. But that time is never when the first fish of a trip is hooked. The sense of desolation, of futility, of the vanity of all vanities, of the under unlikelihood of catching another one during the whole trip is quite trying. I realize that I should never have come at all, that I should have stayed home and tried to learn to like the garden, and that I had made a failure of my whole life. Tom was not looking at me. He was apparently relighting his pipe. A very decent chap, that Tom. I will leave you with the following question to ponder. If the brook trout and lake trout of Algonquin Park are so biologically valuable, why are they, as the top predator of the aquatic system, not afforded the same protection from human interference as the top predator of Algonquin's terrestrial ecosystem, the Algonquin wolf? One hopes that the catch-and-release mindset continues to grow, that catch limits do their job, 
that anglers take the live bait ban seriously and resist any temptation to introduce more invasive species like the pike anywhere in Algonquin Park, and especially not over the Annie Bay Dam. I hope you've enjoyed this exploration of the people and the work carried out on the aquatic systems in Algonquin Park through the Harkness Laboratory of Fisheries Research. For those who are interested, check out my website for some photographs of the work carried out in the Creole Survey Station at Lake Opiongo. In addition, there are all kinds of publications available through the Friends of Algonquin Park, some that you can buy and others, usually a bit more technical, that are available on the Harkness Fisheries website, www.harkness.ca. If you'd like to listen to any more of Breaking Through the Mist, check out Dan Gibson's Solitudes on any place where you get music on the web, such as Apple Music, Spotify, Pandora. Until next time.